discuter de tout ça. I don't want to set the world on fire. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning, whenever it may be, wherever you may be, and however you may be hearing my voice. Whether it be via download through one of the many podcast platforms, or if you are listening to the premiere on the Alternate Current Radio's live stream, I appreciate you tuning in and joining me as we attempt to navigate the shark-infested waters of the agenda-centivized media and look past the propaganda. This is your daily dose of what's currently all the ruckus. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. Howdy, folks. I've got two really big things we need to go over today. But before we begin, a quick riddle. How do you get down from an elephant? You don't. You get down from a goose. You're listening to Alternate Current Radio. I'm Adam Clark, and this is The Daily Ruckus. Mint Press News reports, Big pharmaceutical companies have not come out of COVID-19 looking like model global citizens. Pfizer has been accused of bullying South American governments after demanding they put up military bases as collateral in exchange for vaccines. Meanwhile, Bill Gates persuaded Oxford University to sign an exclusive deal with AstraZeneca for its new offering, rather than allowing it to be copied freely by all. The British-Swedish multinational quickly announced it would fall 50 million vaccines short on its first shipment to the European Union. But what if there were a looming health crisis that could make COVID look almost minor in comparison? The World Health Organization has been warning of just such a case for some time now, predicting that antimicrobial resistance will kill up to 10 million people every year by 2050, almost four times as many as the coronavirus has killed in the past 12 months. Quote, antibiotic resistance is one of the biggest threats to global health, food security, and development today, end quote, they write, noting that without effective antibiotics, all manner of conditions, including pneumonia, tuberculosis, gonorrhea, and salmonella, could become far more deadly. Drug companies are making this situation worse by encouraging the overuse of our precious stores of antibiotics, particularly in the global south, and also by refusing to invest enough resources into creating new ones. The more antibiotics are used, the more resistant bacteria become to them, meaning that humanity must guard its reserves and slow down the pathogen's adaptive evolution by using them 
them only when necessary. Between 2000 and 2015, antibiotic consumption decreased by 4% in rich nations, but increased by 77% in developing ones, and their overuse has become rampant across the world. The poorer enforcement of medical laws in these countries leads manufacturers to, quote, adopt unethical marketing approaches and develop creative ways to incentivize prescribing among healthcare providers. In the words of Dr. Georgia Sullis, an infectious disease physician and epidemiologist at McGill University, Quebec, Sullis explains, quote, India is perhaps the best example in this regard due to its large pharmaceutical market and the predominant role of the private sector in healthcare delivery, a private sector that is highly fragmented and largely unregulated, where a substantial proportion of providers lack any sort of formal medical training, is extremely vulnerable to these kinds of bad business strategies, end quote. Superbugs already kill an estimated 58,000 babies inside the country each year. While India does have a national healthcare system, it is chronically understaffed and under-equipped, leaving most of the population to rely on one of the millions of informal providers, health workers who have no official qualifications. Informal providers vastly outnumber trained professionals. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicines, Minakshi Gautam, an expert on antibiotic use in South Asia, said, quote, there is a very haphazardly integrated type of medicine which is practiced all over India. We have a professionalized modern healthcare system with regulations, but it is a system that is limited in its size and scope. Informal providers or para-health workers are the ones who continue to meet the healthcare needs of millions of people who don't have access to the formal health system, end quote. These informal providers are a gold mine of profits for Big Pharma. A 2019 study by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism found that a host of drug companies ply them with cash incentives, gift cards, medical equipment, vacations, televisions, free samples, and discounts on bulk purchases, all of which were intended to increase antibiotic use, thereby risking over-prescription. Some salesmen admitted to undercover reporters that they knew the drugs were being misused, but that they were motivated purely by profit. They also revealed that they would promote drugs to informal providers based on their profitability, not their efficacy. These informal workers are commonly written off derisively as quacks who give out treatments mindlessly, while Dr. Gautam's work found that they often do have major holes in their medical understanding. She defended them as a vital part of a healthcare system under which seeing a qualified doctor is beyond the financial means of millions. Quote, you might assume that they are illiterate and they are quacks and they do not know what they are doing, but that is not true. What we found was that about 30% may even be graduates or postgraduates. End quote. She added that most had worked as doctor's assistants and continued to be mentored by them. Informal practitioners are usually respected and important members of their communities and, when in doubt, often consult qualified doctors on their best course of action. Dr. Gautam's study also found that they did not prescribe any quote-unquote reserve antibiotics, powerful medications considered a last resort and therefore
therefore used in hospitals as sparingly as possible. Unfortunately, informal practitioners routinely prescribe less than full courses of antibiotics, despite the fact that this is a huge driver of resistance. This is not done out of ignorance, but rather because India is such an unequal society that poor patients simply cannot afford long courses of antibiotics. Dr. Gautam noted, quote, Packages are customized based on patients' paying capacity. If the patient cannot afford a full course, then they will be given two or three days of antibiotics, or even less, end quote. The effect of this is that bacterial infections become stronger and more resistant to treatment with antibiotics, and bacteria do not respect borders. Consequently, the extreme inequality in much of the global south is a direct threat to human survival elsewhere. Thus, any top-down approach simply banning informal practitioners from handing out antibiotics would surely do more harm than good, given the huge shortage of qualified doctors. Furthermore, Dr. Sullis's study found that qualified practitioners were actually more likely to prescribe antibiotics than the so-called quacks. This could be because licensed professionals are subject to exactly the same incentives and financial rewards that their unlicensed peers are under, a system that also prevails across the United States. In 2019, ProPublica found more than 700 American doctors who had received more than $1 million each from drug and medical device companies. It is commonplace for U.S. doctors to receive financial and other rewards for prescribing certain drugs, a system that undermines the their neutrality. Across the world, Big Pharma wines and dines medical professionals in expensive resorts, claiming these events are educational conferences. But the line between informative events and expense-paid vacations is not always easy to distinguish. A second way in which giant pharmaceutical corporations are aiding the spread of resistance is their refusal to devote the necessary resources towards replenishing stores of new antibiotics. Investment in the area has rapidly dwindled. Dr. Gautham said, quote, The big problem is that we do not have any novel antibiotics in the pipeline that we can expect to see in the near future, so we really have to protect those that we do have, end quote. And while the global south over-prescribes antibiotics, in the west, farm animals are pumped full of them, farmers even giving them to healthy animals so they can be packed tighter in ever-increasing herd sizes. The WHO notes that in many countries, 80% of medically important antibiotic consumption goes to farm animals and has strongly recommended a wholesale reduction of the practice. Antibiotics used in farms spill over into the surrounding environment through runoff and waste, creating resistance to drugs and endangering human health. Unfortunately, the for-profit corporate agriculture sector has little regard for the consequences. As one paper in the British Journal of General Practice noted, quote, in animals and fish, antibiotics are used as a substitute for good hygiene, with little understanding of how this might impact on antimicrobial resistance in humans. As a society, we must urgently reconsider how we use antimicrobials to preserve this valuable resource 
source for future generations, end quote. Ultimately, the problem of antibiotic overprescription is structural in nature, and there is little end to it in sight. As Dr. Sullis says, quote, the industry has no interest at all in raising awareness on the importance of using antibiotics wisely and the potential implications of improper use, including overprescription, end quote. Although she noted that it was difficult to accurately weigh up the proportion of blame they deserved and to disentangle their role from other key drivers of the crisis. The negative effects of this looming scenario are profound. Since the adoption of penicillin in the 1940s, the widespread use of antibiotics is estimated to have extended average life expectancy by 20 years. Dr. Gautham noted that, quote, as antibiotic overuse keeps increasing, then all those antibiotics that we have today will slowly become ineffective against even the most common infections, end quote. Thus, the conditions of the past will become the maladies of the future. Cancer treatments such as chemotherapy, cesarean sections, and other common surgeries will be in major jeopardy as they require antibiotics to prevent any post-surgical and opportunistic infections. Healthcare costs will spike as conditions that were treatable in a few days will draw on for weeks, and some cases may not be recoverable. As Dr. Sullis warned, quote, the consequences ultimately affect everyone on the planet. We are already facing a dramatic increase in incidence of multi-drug and extremely drug-resistant infections, but we are running out of effective therapeutic options. This scenario is bound to get worse over the next few years, and in the absence of countermeasures, it will have an impact on healthcare as a whole, not to mention the economic losses, end quote. For such a profound problem, which threatens the very foundation of modern medicine, the story is receiving barely any attention in the media. Indeed, so uninterested is the press in pharmaceutical profiteering accelerating superbugs that media literacy group Project Censored chose it as one of their top 25 most censored stories of 2019 to 2020. The only substantial corporate reporting on the unethical sale of antibiotics, their research showed, was a single 2016 investigation by the New York Times. There is still time to prevent mass suffering, yet this systemic problem appears to be getting worse, not better, as we move closer towards it. Unfortunately, it seems we are sleepwalking into another preventable catastrophe, and few are even talking about it. MintPressNews.com Unfortunately, that's not the only looming disaster that very few are talking about. In fact, the next major crisis I believe humanity will be facing is so horribly underreported on, it was very difficult for me to even find various news pieces to put together to help try to express to you the impending doom we are all facing. Not to be a Debbie Downer or anything. And this one happens to have many factors causing the problem. The Natural Resources Defense Council reports, Industry would have us believe that pesticides help sustain food production, a necessary chemical trade-off for keeping harmful bugs at bay and ensuring we have enough to eat. 
meet, but the data often tell a different story, particularly in the case of neonicotinoid pesticides, also known as neonics. Despite being the most widely used family of pesticides in the United States, research has shown that the largest uses of these neurotoxic chemicals do little to nothing to help crop yields or farmers' bottom lines. If we look closer, it's easy to see why. The vast majority of neonics are applied as coatings on seeds for crops like corn, soybean, and wheat, where they are most often used indiscriminately rather than in response to specific pest problems. For many conventional seed varieties, farmers have no choice but to buy neonics-treated seeds, thanks to the near monopolies enjoyed by agrochemical giants, which manufacture both the seeds and the pesticides. The results? Tens to hundreds of millions of acres are needlessly sown with bee-toxic seeds, and while these wasteful practices may spell good news for the profit margins of chemical manufacturers to the tune of more than $3 billion per year, they are catastrophic news for the surrounding ecosystems. That's because neonics are pervasive ecosystem contaminants. When coated on seeds, they're absorbed systemically as plants grow, up through the roots and into the nectar, pollen, and fruit itself, which then get eaten by other wildlife. What doesn't make it into the plant, usually more than 95% of the toxic seed coating, leaches out into the soil, where it can travel long distances, carried by rain and agricultural runoff into new soil, plants, and water supplies. Once in the ground, neonics are long-lived, building up in the soil over time, and continuing to harm or kill bugs and other wildlife for years after application. Unsurprisingly, our agricultural system is now 48 times more harmful to insect life than it was just two decades ago, with neonics accounting for more than 90% of that increase. That's why it's also no surprise that neonics have been recognized as a primary cause of the massive losses of U.S. honeybee colonies every year. Neonics are also linked to mass die-offs of native bees, birds, and fish, and harm to other important insects and earthworms, which keep our soil healthy and nutrient-dense. This contamination poses a clear ecological crisis, but it's also a crisis for how we eat. In a recent study out of Rutgers University, researchers looked at seven different crops in 131 commercially managed fields across North America to see how many crops were pollinator-limited, i.e. crops whose yields would be higher were there more pollinators. Distressingly, five out of every seven crops they analyzed were pollinator-limited, including favorites like apples, cherries, and blueberries. Quote, honey bee colonies are weaker than they used to be, and wild bees are declining, probably by a lot, said the paper's senior author, Rachel Winfrey. Fewer bees, in turn, mean less food and more pressure on struggling honeybee populations 
populations to replace pollination from native bees, end quote. As Winfrey notes, this reliance on a single species is risky, quote, setting us up for food security problems, end quote. Worse yet, the study shows the likely impact of neonics on our food supply isn't decades away. It's already happening right now. For the present, industries can use stopgap solutions like breeding and shipping out more honeybees to make up for lost colonies, but these strategies may ultimately fail if we don't address the source of the vast and wasteful neonic contamination. Looking into the future, low yields may mean that some of our favorite foods become far pricier or unavailable entirely, an outcome with high human and economic costs. In the United States, the production of crops that rely on pollination is valued at more than $50 billion annually. Indeed, one in every three bites of food is reliant on pollinators. Food workers, an umbrella term for a behemoth industry that includes everyone from farm workers to restaurant cooks and servers to grocery store clerks, could experience increased job disruptions too, should the markets for these foods become upended. Recently, a group of local New York chefs, recognizing their reliance on bees and an abundant and diverse food supply to keep restaurants open, workers employed, and their food healthy and delicious, asked state legislators to rein in wasteful neonic use statewide. Faced with rising food costs, more families may also struggle to put food on the table. Already, more than 10.5% of all U.S. families, or more than 35 million Americans, experienced food insecurity at some point in 2019. During the COVID-19 crisis, that number has ballooned. For those unsure where their next meal may come from, even moderate increases in food costs are felt acutely. Potentially significant changes to food costs or availability, particularly for our most nutrient-dense produce, would likely hit low-income families hardest. EcoWatch.com And as if one problem facing the world's food supply wasn't bad enough, apparently food waste has increased dramatically, according to Daniel Imhoff and Christina Batarako for The Hill. And they write, It seems like a paradox. 50 million Americans are hungry, yet 40% of food produced in the U.S. goes to waste. In fact, this paradox illuminates chronic problems in our nation's industrial food system. Food waste increased dramatically in 2020 as consumers changed their behavior by stockpiling shelf-stable goods, ordering more food online, and eating more at home. That meant that farmers and food service suppliers lost their biggest customers in restaurants and institutions. At the same time, meat processing facilities became bottlenecks as COVID-19 outbreaks slowed or shut down production. As food waste rose to unprecedented levels, America's food banks and other donation programs were overwhelmed by demand at rates not seen since the Great Depression. Unable to pivot to meet the new patterns of demand in either charity or food service, dairy farmers were forced to dump as much as 3.7 million gallons of milk each day. One billion pounds of fresh produce were 
were left to rot in storage, and a single large poultry producer killed nearly 2 million birds in the month of April. All this occurred as payments to farmers from bailouts, subsidies, and stimulus funding reached roughly $46 billion, the highest in two decades. The COVID-19 pandemic revealed and exacerbated the already weak links and inequalities in our industrial food system. It is a system that has grown ever more massive in the last half century in the name of efficiency. But today, the very size of that system impedes its efficiency and adaptability. For example, the massive consolidation of meat processing has proven to be a health hazard for its highly vulnerable workforce and a liability for livestock producers. Giant slaughter and processing plants hastened the disappearance of local and regional suppliers, which may have been better suited to fill gaps in the national food supply. Industrial agriculture has roots in the post-World War II era, when surpluses served as a defense against famine and helped gain international markets for farmers. Yet today, overproduction consumes and degrades scarce resources, pollutes excessively, and depresses prices, adding another source of irony. Overproduction of certain commodity crops also exacerbates our national obesity crisis, even among many low-income Americans experiencing hunger. Overproduction may also contribute to climate change. Consider this. If global food waste had the status of a country, it would rank third behind China and the United States in greenhouse gas emissions. At the same time, climate change could pose new threats to agriculture. Rising temperatures and unpredictable weather events will only worsen farmers' ability to successfully harvest crops. Indeed, last month's freeze in Texas resulted in more than $300 million in losses of Rio Grande Valley fruit and vegetable crops. Households, restaurants, and institutions lost huge volumes of food due to prolonged power and water outages. Loss of the spring crop of Texas produce will send ripple effects throughout the food supply, driving up consumer prices and depleting food bank reserves. Left unchecked, chronic problems with industrial agriculture will wreak havoc on present and future capacity to grow food and feed a hungry nation. TheHill.com And all of this, folks, is leading to my personal numero uno biggest fear, and it's already coming true. As reported by Natural News, global supply chains are breaking down due to the government's endless COVID-19 restrictions, and the latest consumer commodity casualty is coffee. According to reports, a long-standing imbalance of shipping containers around the world is spiking transportation costs for coffee, which could end up spiking the cost of coffee for end consumers. Coffee processors of all sizes are being affected by the disruption. Small, medium, and large coffee roasters are all bearing the brunt, though the smaller ones are being hit a lot harder. Quote, there are supply constraints, not because of production, but simply hurdles brought upon us by COVID-19 and safety guidelines, says Jorge Cuevas, an executive at Sustainable Harvest Coffee Importers in Portland, Oregon. It is a systemic issue. It is now more expensive than in the last five to ten years to bring coffee to the consumer, end quote. Carlos Mera, an 
analyst for the Rabobank Group, a food and agricultural financing bank, says, quote, The container cost is a major issue in the coffee market. Even if you are willing to pay, you may not find availability. End quote. Naturalnews.com And dear listeners, in case you didn't know, I am a huge addict, I mean fan, of coffee. And a world where coffee is not available is completely unacceptable to me. But all kidding aside, I hope you understand where I'm going with all of this. Because of many different factors, not the least of which have to do with the quote-unquote pandemic, our supply chains, and in particular our food supplies, are in grave danger. And more than that, I'm afraid that the damage has already been done. And what we may be looking at is sort of a ripple effect, a tidal wave, as it were. My personal opinion would be to, of course, make sure that you have enough foodstuffs available on hand. Don't panic buy or anything, of course. But maybe consider growing some crops or having some sort of livestock, if that's a possibility. Get together with local farmers. Discover what other options there are around you and in your community other than relying on the grocery store and the restaurants to feed you. Because what if something goes wrong with the restaurants and the grocery stores? I hope you realize that it's not really an if, but a when. For the ACR, I'm Adam Clark, and this has been The Daily Ruckus for Friday, April 9, 2021. For more information, please visit alternatecurrentradio.com.